Chata. Welcome to another edition of High Trust, Low Context, Episode 7, Hollywood Decoded. I'm your host, El Chaco, and I've got with me today another awesome guest. He's, the, he's none other than Dr. E. Michael Jones, founder and editor of Culture Wars magazine and author of several epic books such as Baron Metal, Degenerate Moderns, Logos Rising, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, and Libido Dominandi, to name a, f- a few. Over the years, Dr. Jones has spoken many times about the death of the Hollywood production code era, better known as the Hayes Code, which we just uh, addressed in the previous video here. And given my background in film and media studies, and my desire to select only the finest content to show my family on our big screen in the house, uh, I thought who better to bring on than Dr. Jones himself uh, to explain what exactly happened to cinema and why a vast majority of the movies that have come out since 1965 have had sprinklings of degenerate modern garbage throughout so without further further ado welcome to the show dr jones and thank you very much for coming on thank you thank you for having me so you have talked about the hollywood production code era before was it mentioned specifically in some of the books that i just mentioned it's mentioned in particular in a book a biography i've wrote of cardinal Kroll called john cardinal Kroll and the cultural revolution he was cardinal archbishop of philadelphia during the 1960s and 70s And he was a crucial figure because he was the head of the uh, Legion of Decency, which was the enforcement arm of the uh, production code, the Catholic enforcement arm of the production code. And he was there uh, when the Jews in Hollywood broke the code. And uh, the correspondence back and forth between Monsignor Little, who was the actual head of the Legion of Decency, and Eli Landau, who was the producer of the the pawnbroker, I think is, is very instructive in understanding about what happened here? This, I, I, I watched the the video you just uh, showed. I had a hard time understanding what that lady was saying a lot of the times, but uh, <laughs> bad accent. Yeah. She, it, the the music played over it was was not helpful either. But but the point is that uh, the, yeah the they let whoever the crucial film was left out. The crucial code breaking film was the pawnbroker, nineteen sixty five. That was. 1965. And it, so, so for our listeners, the, the Hayes Code was kind of quasi-officially in place, what, since uh, 1938 to 1964, 65? No, right? no, no. The, the Hayes Code was the preliminary to the production code. So ba- ba- okay. basically, in order to understand this, you have to understand the ethnic dynamic of the United States of America, which is basically three ethnic groups based on three religions, Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. This is the dynamic that was at work in the obscenity case. So in the 1920s, after the Jews established Hollywood, they immediately used film as a way of subverting the morals of the general population. And people were outraged. And the Protestants dominated at that point. They were the dominant group. And they decided to do something about it. And they got uh, Will Hayes, the former postmaster general, to head uh, some type of group that was going to do a, a reign in Hollywood. They, he failed. OK, but then they had, there was a moment of opportunity beginning in 1929. 1929 is when the Hollywood studios invested in talking pictures. They had to go into debt to do this. There was a, they borrowed from the Bank of America, a man by the name of Giannini, who was an Italian Catholic, was the head of that bank. 
And at that point, the uh, stock market crashed. So they have a lot of debt, and they're trying to pay it back with a deflated currency, which is not an easy thing to do. And at that point, the Catholics stepped up to the plate. They had gotten together in 1926 at a Eucharistic Congress in Chicago, and the talk was, what are we going to do about the Jews in Hollywood and their promotion of obscenity? And at this point, they made their move. They called for a boycott of Hollywood pictures, and in particular, it went by diocese. So Philadelphia, Cardinal Doherty, who was head of Philadelphia, called for a boycott of Warner Brothers theaters in Philadelphia. And the Catholics in Philadelphia took a pledge and said they would follow the Legion of Decency's direction, so they stayed away from the movies. As uh, mm-hmm. as Sam Goldman would have said, they stayed away in droves, and as a result— <laughs> uh, as a result, Harry Warner was losing $100,000 a week. Now, this is real money. A week in Philadelphia alone, and the boycott was threatening to spread to every big city in America, which meant because they all have big Catholic population, that would have been devastating. That would have put Hollywood out of business. So at that point, Hollywood capitulated. Joe Breen was in on the uh, the uh, man from Philadelphia who was the man who was basically the guy who was the spearhead of this thing. He said Harry Warner was crying tears as big as horse turds because he's losing $100,000 a week in Philadelphia alone. So they backed down. The Jews backed down, and they accepted the production code, which basically says all the things that you mentioned there, no nudity, no ridicule of clergy. And uh, as as this pointed out in that uh, documentary there, uh, some of the greatest directors produced some of the greatest films in American history under that code. So it, it really didn't hit, inhibit creativity, even if it was a little idiosyncratic and had to deal with things like the sensitivities of people in the South about race and stuff like that. I pointed out to friends that even like William Shakespeare wrote in the iambic pentameter, which is a limiting creative tool. I mean, you, you know, to be able to fit yourself into the iambic pentameter format is, is difficult. It's an added thing. So to have yourself right within the code, it makes you change your dialogue. It makes you change your focus. Um, but at the same time, it, it doesn't totally hinder creativity. In fact, in some ways, it enhances it when you're trying to fit within a format, just like any kind of type, different type of poetry or something like that. Yeah. Well, it also makes it better. So that uh, mm-hmm. because because you have to tell a real story as opposed to just nudity, which is basically what it became. So at this point, the uh, Hollywood is in another bind now by the 1950s because they're competing with television. And they decide, mm-hmm. how, we, how are we going to compete with television? Well, we'll go to, we'll go to Rome. Where it, extras are cheap and it'll be put on these big uh, extravaganzas like Ben-Hur. The robe. Yeah. Sword and Sandals movies. Thousands of extras. Yeah. Uh, Anthony and Cleopatra. I think it was Anthony and Cleopatra. Or was this called Cleopatra? Uh, like the end point of that. A huge number. Huge sets. Huge numbers of extra. And basically what? <laughs> hardly any dialogue. You're just, you know, the, the spectacle had taken over, over the film. But that's expensive. Even at cut rate True. in Italy, it's expensive. And so there's a cheaper High way. And the cheaper way is simply nudity. It's very simple, and that's that's what happened. They had they knew they couldn't show that on television if they break the code. And so, how are you going to break the code? How are you going to break the code? You can't just. They tried it in 1964 with a film called "Kiss Me Stupid," which uh, starred Dean Martin and Kim Novak. It was a sex farce, a lot of leering, like dirty jokes. Uh, it was mm-hmm. awful. Everybody hated it, and nothing happened. On the other hand. 
What happened in Germany in the same year was successful, and that was a movie by Ingmar Bergman, who was the king of art movies at this point, the Swedish director. And it was yep. called Silence, the Schweigen or Tüßwagen in uh, Swedish, and it broke. There was it broke the obscenity law in Germany, and that became that was the message. Now this was deliberately Bergman was in on the fix. He was working with a Jew by the name of Harry Schein. Doesn't sound Swedish to me, but uh, <laughs> he was an Austrian Jew who fled. To, his family fled to Sweden, and that's where he grew up. And then he was the go-between between the Svensk film industry and Hollywood. And they deliberately came up with a code breaker. And it was called Silence. Mm. And it had various stuff in there. It's like Bergman, the typical Bergman movie. This was art. And the, that was what broke the code in Germany. If it's art, well, I guess it can't be obscene, even though there's a scene of the woman masturbating and so on and so forth. Ugh. That completely flummoxed the, the German censors. They were always, already crippled because they were a conquered nation, had mm -hmm. been conquered by the Americans, and the Jews had total control over whatever got published or produced in Germany at that point. So the German film industry collapsed in uh, the, the obscenity law, collapsed in 64 in Germany, and one year later, they tried it again, and this time we're not going to mess around with Dean Martin. They brought in the big gun, and the big gun was the Holocaust. The and Holocaust the movie, movie, The Pawnbroker. The Pawnbroker. Yeah, so it, this, so this is serious stuff. And the, the so you're talking about a battle between Jews and Catholics at a moment when mm. the Catholic Church just concluded the Second Vatican Council was probably the most important event in 500 years in the Catholic oh, Church, yeah, right around that same time. Yeah, same the same year, same within a, a month or so, they passed this document called Nostra Tate, which said basically the church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism. Well, oh, mm -hmm. great. That's great. But nobody defined anti-Semitism. So you got right. all these Catholic liberals who are basically on the uh, censorship board working for the Legion of Decency. And now they're looking at a Holocaust film where basically – Using the Holocaust as an excuse for this lady to take off her shirt and show bare breast on the screen. It was, like a, it was a post Holocaust movie too. It wasn't even set during the Holocaust. It was like no, a no, no, the no. The flashback. Yeah, there was a flashback to the guy's wife in one of these camps, and she had bare breast too. Yeah. So it was. This, this yes. is this is the, the the whole point here is it's uh, using the Holocaust to get bare breast on the screen. Now. As part of the archival research I did, I saw the correspondence between Monsignor Little and Eli Landau, the producer. Eli Landau saying, listen, this is going to be great cinematic art. When we break the code, everything will be great artistic, blah, blah, blah. And Little said, look, this is this crucial scene is where the, the prostitute takes off her shirt and right in front of Rod Steiger, who is the pawnbroker. He's, Melittle says, I got a better scene for you. What you can do is have the prostitute face Rod Steiger and shoot it from the back. That way, she'll mm -hmm. her back won't break the code, and Rod Steiger can do a little bit of acting here. Instead of using yeah. breast as a substitute for acting, he can act. He can emote. Exactly. Let's, let's see that look on your face, Rod, of like all, you know— uh, well, he didn't want to do that because the whole point of this was to break the code and smuggle breasts onto the big screen movie because this is going to inaugurate a great era of art. Well, within seven years, mm. what we had was Deep Throat, yeah. Dev The Devil and Miss Jones, and Behind the Green Door, three hardcore 
pornography films shown in mainstream theaters. So they showed their hand. The Jews were interested in pornography. They've always been behind pornography. And they used art and the, the, the whole Second Vatican Council as a way of breaking down obscenity laws, uh, and particularly the production code. So my wife and I like to watch a lot of classic films, and I, I like to choose movies specifically from the code era because you can see that they, that they aren't going to promote smut. And it's not even just bare breasts. It's like the actual content of the film. So, for example, you said that the, the code was broken officially in, in 1965. In 1966, like I said, I love Westerns. There was a movie called The Professionals, which had Burt Lancaster and Lee Marvin. And before that, most, most Western films, you didn't have the protagonist do anything that involved adultery, nothing to do with fornication, nothing to do with any of that stuff. Literally, the opening scenes of The Professionals is Burt Lancaster in a room with a, with a lady, and there's a knocking at the door, and it's the lady's husband. And so he goes and he tosses himself out the window, the, the cliched thing of a man kind of or, or somebody who's uh, committing adultery, sneaking out the window, falling out in their underwear, and then, and then getting picked up outside. And I'm watching this. I'm going, man, that was one year later. Like not even like it was one year later. And, and so we've watched and we, we can absolutely you can absolutely tell based on the dialogue, based on the composition of the film, what year it's in. If it's in that window or if it's out of right. that window. Cat Blue right. is another movie that Jane Fonda was in. And the, and the you know, it promotes uh, feminism like crazy. It introduces so much to do with race in an area that really didn't have a lot. But OK, fine. So down here in Paraguay, uh, there's a lot of Mennonites, right? And then uh, they're, they're a lot like the, the Amish in a, in a lot of ways. And I right. think that the Amish community has, what is it, Bumspringa or something where they let their Rum, kids go out. Rum, Rumspringa, jumping around. Okay, exactly. So, so I think it's like they get like a year to kind of go out and do everything and then, and then come back if they want or not come back if they want. If they come back, they really wanted to be a part of the, of the, uh, of the religious community. If they don't, they, they, that wasn't. That wasn't their destiny. I, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. But in a way, it's a lot like that. It's a lot like that college kid who gets away to their uh, moves away from their parents house, goes and lives in a dorm and starts getting drunk every single night because all of a sudden the leash was off. Right. And, and in Hollywood, they were really hammering these in. So like you said, so deep throat and the green door behind the green door. Those were all 1972. Correct. 73 around that time. Yeah. 73. And then you got stuff that you got like directors like John Waters, who did Pink Flamingos. He's got characters eating feces on screen. They're having fornication inside a Catholic church. And it's also interesting. So I've seen some really good breakdowns of the pawnbroker. And beyond just the breaking of the code with the, bre- with the bare breasts, there's a lot of digs at the Catholic church in that movie, considering the fact that Saul, the main character's assistant, this is. This uh, side, this this side character, this uh, uh, Jesus is the ki- is the guy's name, and he's gets caught stealing, and he's going with a gang, and in every shot that they show the gang, they got a crucifix in the background. Yeah, right. It's a it's it's a lot of these digs, right? Yeah. And then on top of it, the language. So you know, for example, you go and watch movies like Jaws, directed by Steven Spielberg, and the amount of times that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name is said with force and irreverence as a, a new swear word. It's almost like it came out of that era where all of a sudden that normalized it, and now we've got people all over, even in the Catholic community, who don't even think twice when they blurt out our Lord's name, breaking a, a, one of the top three commandments right off the bat. So it's 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 really interesting and. It, it really signals why the Catholic Church and the League of Decency 
were very much on top of this because it didn't take long for this Pandora's box to really open and, and really spread itself out. And I, I hadn't even thought about the whole thing about the timing with, uh, with Vatican II. So when did the Catholic Church dismantle the League of Decency was that around the same time as well as like getting rid of the 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 book of band or the list of banned books? Yeah, it was a period that began in '65 with the pawnbroker, and I think it ended by '67 with uh, "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf?" Uh, there's there's no nudity there, but there's a lot of profanity in that point. And at that point, at that point, Joe Breen had retired, and it was the same thing in Germany. The guy who was the founder of it was called the Volksverbund in Germany, and that was the church's watchdog against obscenity. He retired. His name was Kalmus, and he retired. And the people who followed him simply didn't have the nerve or didn't have the motivation to do it. So there's another, a guy by the name of Jeff Sherlock who takes mm-hmm. over after, after uh, Joe Breen retires. And at this point, he's getting no clear direction from the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church is now involved in this failed experiment called Catholic-Jewish Dialogue. And it continued for 50 years, 50 years after Vatican II. The Vatican did a, a, a kind of statement on it and said that it was disappointing, which is a polite way of saying it was a complete waste of time. Because what happened here is that the Catholics lost their sense that the Jews were their opponents in the culture wars. Mm-hmm. They were. There's no question about right. it. The Jews knew that. Why didn't the Catholics know that? Mm-hmm. And because they, well, they, they thought— They are. They were in denial. A lot of it was that they, wanted, they didn't want to seem backward— or not with it. This was mm. especially, especially the case in Germany, where the Volkswagenbund would use terms like schmutz und schund. Schmutz und schund means like <laughs> filth, filth, filth and smut. And the, right. the Catholic Church became embarrassed by this because of Vatican II. And the other thing that happened over there was that basically the Kinsey Report took Germany by storm in the 1950s, right. like leading oh, right up to this point. That's when the word report became a German word. It wasn't a German word, but it became a German word there. And Kinsey was a scientist. Well, are you going to argue of. with science? Yeah. I, I mean, this guy, yeah. this, this guy's an expert on gall wasps. Well, that means he should tell you how to have your sex life, how to run your sex life, right? No. And on top of that, he, w- he was a homosexual. That was deliberately suppressed until recently. He was portrayed cool. on Time magazine, cover of Time magazine with a crew cut and a bow tie, you know, like kind of like me, but I don't have a crew and cut. And Liam Neeson played him. Right. Yeah. And they had Liam uh, Neeson uh, play him in the biography? Yeah, they did. They did. So they're, they're kind of, uh, but they did have the homosexuality in the, in the biopic. That came out in the biopic. Largely because a guy named James Jones wrote a biography earlier uh, exposing it. I, I went down to Bloomington. I'm not far from Bloomington. Interviewed Paul Gebhardt mm-hmm. and wrote an article on it that appeared in Culture Wars, basically saying that Kinsey was a homosexual. Largely just because of his writings, you could tell he was a homosexual because the male volume was com- completely skewed in favor of deviance, and it didn't give an accurate picture at all of the sexual practices of the American people. Well, didn't he sample out from, like, actual sex criminals in prisons and stuff like that? Didn't he, like, pull out a lot of people who were already on that side he of the was, line? He, uh, was interested, to, to he was interested in deviance. He loved going to gay bars and interviewing the guys there about what they did. So it completely skewed. He, he ended up claiming that there was 10% of the population was homosexual. That's preposterous. It's preposterous now. 
Uh, it was certainly preposterous in 1947. This is the type of stuff, and he got away with it because he was being backed by the Rockefellers. They gave him money. They gave him credibility. They gave him legitimacy. Ah, and then they were yeah. part of the WASP elite that ruled the country at that point. And so as a result, he got put on the cover of Time magazine as like some type of Boy Scout. A straight arrow, Boy Scout. They kept mentioning he was a Boy Scout, kept covering up the fact that he was a homosexual that had an agenda, which was basically to overturn, use science to overturn the moral fiber of the, the, the United States of America. Well, and he succeeded. I mean, he, he absolutely succeeded. I mean, later on, uh, there is a book that is very difficult, very difficult to get your hands on. It's called After the Ball. Are you familiar with this book? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, sure. It was written in the 90s. So it was to push the gay agenda and really to normalize it. So, I mean, as we saw it in television, they had a point. There's that movie, American Beauty. I think it was in 1999 or 2000 when that movie came out. And it starred Kevin Spacey. Like they had the neighbors that would come over. And it was Scott Bakula and another guy. And they're all put together, just like you were talking about what they did with Dr. Kinsey on uh, Life magazine. You know, they make it so that these guys are, how could you possibly think anything less of these people? Right, They're just normal right. guys. They're just normal that's professionals. Right. And that's actually written in the book itself. It's, it's, it, they, they step by step tell how they're going to do it. And they're, they're saying, don't, don't say that it's a choice. We all know it's a choice, but don't say it's a choice. You know, say that it's born, born this way. Okay, we're going to take the choice out of it. And then we're going to, we're going to depict people in this very specific way. We're going to make sure that the friend who's got a, always the best advice is depicted as a gay person. So we saw that in, in shows like uh, Will and Grace, and we saw it in um, Ellen. There was a, a definite push around that same time of the 90s. And so it's funny to me because they put it out there, and then they yanked the, the book out. You can't get that book. It's a very hard book to get your hands on. On eBay, I think it's like $250 to get a copy of it. But going into now, it's also interesting how things have evolved because of all these comic book movies. Most of the time, it's, it's set for a set PG age grouping. And, you know, in the 70s and 80s, most of these movies like Terminator and all these kind of movies that are rated R definitely had nudity always in them. And so just recently, I know you, you've had some comments lately about this whole Barbenheimer effect. And Oppenheimer comes out and it has a nude scene in it. And it's almost like people have, haven't seen nudity in a movie in a while that it caused a lot of shock in different communities. Do you have anything to kind of say about what, what's, uh, you know, where we're headed in terms of this postcode era? <laughs> yeah, I, first of all, pornography is always driven by technology. And so the cutting, mm -hmm. cutting edge of technology toward the end of the production code was glossy magazines. So it was Playboy. Playboy came out in 54, I believe. That's when the first issue came yeah. out in 54. And that was high-resolution glossy photography. And that was the same thing in Germany. The code was in obviously in force at that point. And it was only later that it entered mainstream Hollywood production. And then it became sort of formalized with the R-rated movie. Once you accepted the, the code, the different gradations, R-rated movies meant you had to have, you had to have nudity. It became so formulaic that you, you could kind of predict it. You just could predict it. And Oppenheimer is, is an R-rated movie from a, a kind of a bygone era. But mm -hmm. what happened over this period of time is that the technology shifted and the, the big change was the VCR. That was the driving force right. behind pornography. Well, that's why people bought the initial VCR. 
And at that point, it changed completely. That was the era of boogie nights. Uh, that's described mm-hmm. in that film where you had Hollywood, kind of Hollywood. They went to Northridge. To, Northridge became the pornography production center of California because it had easy access to all the high-tech equipment that was in Hollywood. It wasn't far away. And so you had these high-production-value pornographic films until that blew up again. And then it was replaced by the Internet. The Internet then became the main vehicle of pornography. And that was the, the golden era, for, if you use, excuse the term, but, I mean, the era when you could make money mm. off of pornography was the, yeah. we, the pornographic website. Money. Well, I don't know whether yes. they're making money or not, but what happened, that blew up as well. And then you had something like Pornhub, which basically right. was for free unless you wanted to do something special. And then that blew up. And now I think Twitter is the main source of pornography on the Internet. People don't talk about this. Well, and you've said you said before that pornography can be used absolutely as a weapon. You brought up the example of Ramallah with Israeli took over Israeli forces took over the region of Ramallah and took over all of the the networks there. So basically anybody turning on the news to try to well, at first they had an enforced curfew, so they couldn't leave. And then they're in their house, and basically the only thing they can turn on on the TV is pornography. And, That's right. You know, it's a demoralization That's right. factor. And That's so right. Now it's like, it's like I'm, I'm a father. I've got, a, I've got an 11-year-old son, and I try to make sure that when I, you know, pick content for my kids – I'm picking the right stuff. So I'm not going to be giving him a smartphone. I'm not going to be giving him a smartphone yeah, of his you own. Can't. Because you, you have to restrict only that. two clicks away. Absolutely. Yeah. You, ha- you cannot give away. children. You cannot give children uh, phones. You cannot do that. Absolutely not. See, no. when I was, when I, I, my, my children are ranged now from 54 to 30, 34, something. Yeah. 33, something like that. The big issue was television. Okay. I, I never had a television. And then what happened is they introduced a – no, we didn't have a television. And then they introduced Mm -hmm. the VCR, and then my wife was saying, well, you know, why can't we watch Mary Poppins? And I thought, well, I guess I control the content. But what you did was you allowed a habit to form of watching videos. Right. Because nobody watched television. Television was worthless. We never watched television. But these were, you know, high-quality movies that were, you know, Mary Poppins is an anti-feminist film. Why not that? But then you get addicted to watching films and suddenly you realize that has an effect on you as well. And then that that story that I told about Ramallah, I gave that lecture in Europe, uh, in Iran. I gave it in the United States. And a lot of times there were Palestinians there who basically said I was there and uh, what you said was was true, but it was much worse than that. That That is not in Interesting. my book, Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. That happened one year after I published that book, which kind of proved the thesis oh. of my book. Because basically I said at this point, so what is the message, uh, what is the meaning of pornography? If you look at uh, Boogie Nights or that movie about Larry Flint, People versus Larry Flint. Pornography means freedom. Well, why? Why? So this means the Israelis are bringing freedom to the Palestinians in Ramallah. Well, that's preposterous. <laughs> Look at what's happening now over there. The Israelis are not bringing anything but death and destruction to the Palestinian people. So it proved my point that pornography was a weapon in the culture wars. It was a form of control. Well, what's also interesting, too, is is that it's very hard. There was a period of time where you could 
you could like they had the list there the the legion of decency was there so a, a catholic family could look something up and go is this okay or not but they even have these websites here there's one called common sense media and i used to use common sense media to see hey is this show going to be okay for my kids or is it not going to be okay for my kids i can't sit and watch every two hour long veggie tales movie or whatever oh, veggie tales is an easy one and that, that one's usually okay but you know what i mean i can't sit and watch every single one of these things unless i'm with my kids for every one of them so i, I like to know ahead of time what's going to be good and what isn't and even that betrays you I, I saw it they had a common sense media had a negative thing about the apple dumpling gang do you remember the apple dumpling gang with don knotts there was a woman, the female lead in that movie, she's very tomboy-esque and she's a very cowboy-esque lady and she, she gets saddled with having to help take care of these kids. And by the end of the movie, she actually realizes, actually, I want to raise these kids. I want to have a family. I want to I adopt them. And so they get married. They hit her and the male lead. They get married and then they take the kids and they raise these, these orphans. So that's, that's a good ending. Common Sense Media says this is uh, potentially negative because it enforces traditional femininity stereotypes. And I'm thinking to myself, don't, don't knock that. We want that. I want my, yeah. my daughter no, to want to be a yeah. mom someday. Why would, so, what is that? So what, you're, what you're seeing here is desensitization has crept in. And you don't even know it. You, you become desensitized and you don't even know it. So we did an article on Hugh Hefner when that Netflix thing came out on him. And right. I po- posted a picture of one of the Playboy bunnies in a Playboy outfit. You know, the bunny outfit. Mm-hmm. And this lady writes in and says, yeah. shame, shame on you. That's scandalous. I said to her, have you been to the beach lately? I mean, you're com- this, is, this is what this lady <laughs> is wearing would be a completely modest bathing suit at the beach compared to what people are wearing now because of this type of desensitization that has crept into our culture. It has a deadening well, a effect on the culture. The only time I really noticed it was well, when, I went to, when I went to Iran, where the women are completely covered up wearing yeah. the hijab and the chatter. Yeah, they've got modesty at a level that we, we used to have and don't have anymore, but it's interesting, too, going back to the code, when I was saying there, there was a the new Tom Cruise movie, it was a couple of years back, maybe 2021, when they put out a new Top Gun movie, Maverick, Top Gun Maverick. And people were really liking it because all of a sudden they're like, hey, this thing isn't as woke as what the stuff we're getting is these days. Like It's almost it's almost like a complete inverse where when you see something that doesn't have all this woke stuff put into it, this ejected critical race theory stuff in there and feminism and all that kind of stuff, what ends up happening is people go, whoa, I remember what movies were like when it didn't have all this kind of stuff in it. And it's almost like an inverse code. It's almost like if you want to get a movie made in Hollywood today, you have to have a gay character. You have to have your villains must be straight white men. You have to have a dig at Christians. You have to do all these kind of things if you want to get your movie made. It's almost like they've taken the code and whatever was the opposite of it is what is required now to get yourself into a, you know, get your get your movie green lit. That's right. You think I'm That's right. on the right track with that? No, of, of course you're right. But the problem yeah. is, <laughs> wait a minute. Uh, everybody stopped going to the movies. I wonder why. Yeah. As, as I said, yeah. as, as Sam Goldwyn said, they're staying away in droves. And Hollywood is in a serious uh, <laughs> crisis right now because nobody, how many X-Men movies do you want to see? How many do you want to see? 
This is why this is why I think Oppenheimer was a significant break with that trend. Uh, Martin Scorsese praised uh, Nolan for doing Oppenheimer. He said, this is what we have to get back to rather than all these cartoon movies. The problem is that Oppen- there was this, these gratuitous sex scenes in, in Oppenheimer. Why did he feel they need to do that? It distracted from the film. It has nothing to do with nuclear physics. I know this comes as a shock to you, but it, it doesn't have anything to do with nuclear physics. And if you want to talk about the, <laughs> about his guilty conscience, there were other ways to do it. So it was, I think that what happened is that Nolan has become desensitized, that he doesn't know when he's wrecking his own movies. If there's one guy who does not know when he's wrecking his own movies, it's Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese needs the production code. He really needs the production code. His movies would be much better if he were forced to conform to that code. Absolutely. And well, I mean, this is, again, the man who did The Last Temptation of Christ. So, you know, he, he's done his digs. And this, I think Scorsese was was he baptized Catholic? I think he absolutely. was brought up Catholic. He was maybe or not. Yeah, no, he was he, absolutely. He was not only that, he was a seminarian for a while. And and oh my goodness. And uh, what you saw in this early stuff, especially Last Temptation of Christ, which was a really significant insight into his biography. This rebellion mm-hmm. against uh, this hatred of Jesus Christ that he dragged in from his rebellious days as a seminarian. I don't know why he got kicked out of the seminary, but he was determined to prove that the bishop was wrong and he was right or something like that. Now he's kind of become the, the house pet of uh, America magazine, the Jesuit magazine. Uh, and uh, right. uh, to, uh, to, uh, to his credit, he did that uh, movie Silence, the Japanese movie. That was a good movie. But uh, like, t- take take uh, gangs gangs of New York. He had to ruin it. You got to ruin it. Either either with sex or violence. He has no control, no taste when it comes to knowing just what should be shown and what should not be shown. I talk about this often with my wife, and we were talking about when we were growing up how commonplace it was to have these kind of inappropriate scenes in movies. And it, it was really common for us. I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, you know, covering our eyes when we're watching these movies with our parents. It becomes normalized because there would be adult comedy films and, and kid comedy films. Like there was a separation. Whereas now a lot of these Pixar movies, all of these things, they try to cram everything into one. So they'll have a joke that they try to put as a whoosh over the kids' heads and right into the, to the parents. Like we tried watching Shrek and Shrek 2, and there's so many little subversive things that are in those movies that uh, we're, we're sitting there going, I don't know if we want to have this one in the rotation anymore. This one might, might not fit anymore. And it's really hard for parents because we don't realize you put in a lot of these things into movies like – I had on my one previous show, I used to say, I don't like, I don't like Xmas, right? I don't like Xmas. And I use the term Xmas for Christmas without Christ. Any kind of movie or song that's supposedly a Christmas movie that has no reference or whatsoever to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when my kids will be bringing up, uh, oh, we watched this uh, Garfield Christmas thing, and I'll always jokingly say to them, oh, yeah, and at what point did they mention the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And they go, uh, they didn't. I'm like, then it's not a Christmas movie. It's an Xmas no, movie. No, it's kind right? of, look, and, it's, it's been a tradition in Hollywood. I once said that D, uh, Irving Berlin de-Christed Christmas, and everybody jumped oh, on me. Yeah, this proves that Jones is an anti-Semite. And then I said, well, wait a minute. Philip Roth said that. I didn't say that. Philip Roth said that, the author of Portnoy's Complaint. So what you have is this kind of Jewish ridicule of, of Christmas, like Christmas Vacation. Isn't that the name of the film? With um, 
uh, White Christmas uh, was uh, Urban. Uh, White White Christmas Kane, was, who was also a Jewish. Yeah. White White Christmas is as fairly respectful. It commercial. It's commercialization of Christmas. There's no no Christ. Absolutely. He had he did Easter parades, the same type of thing. The commercialization of Easter, which is not good, but it's not as bad as what followed. You know, like this. What was the Sarah Silverman thing? Mm-hmm. Remember that they they did. Oh, uh, that's Santa Inc. Yeah, Santa yeah. Inc. And they doubled down. Santa Inc. They doubled down that, afterwards and even had a promotional video where they got this Shabbos Goy who comes and, uh, you know, is d- doing their turkey in the oven for them and putting on the, the Star of David on the on the tree. And they're making they're mocking yeah. the whole thing and get a load of this Goy. You know, it's like, wow, you're so right that, out in the open about this. So. This, this, is, this shows right. you the deterioration of Jewish taste, I guess. Uh, I mean, going from White Christmas to Santa Inc., when the more power the Jews get in our culture through the media, the more transgressive they become. They, they're not happy unless they're kind of ridiculing something that you consider sacred. Well, to be fair, to be fair, one of my favorite Catholic movies, A Man for All Seasons, I believe that was directed by a Jew, correct? I think I that uh, A Man Rob, for All Seasons is that the Rob, Thomas More no. movie. I, I know the movie. I don't know who the director was. Uh, okay, yeah, I, I I remember looking into it. I think the guy's name starts with a Z or something like that. But it was, you know, it was one of those times where I was like, okay, this was done with respect. This was done well, but it's very hard to find. And well, you that, about Irving Berlin. That was a code right? movie, wasn't it? That was a code movie that came out under the code, didn't it? Had to have been. Had to. Have been. Yeah. Well, yeah. they. Yeah, so, yeah the, so the, they were held in line by the Catholic superego here. Actually, no. That was just outside of the code. I just looked it up right now. Man for All Seasons was 1966. Uh, so, so that would have well, been no, directed now, by Frank Zinneman. Okay, so 66, this is like, it's like a freight train. It takes a long time to stop a freight train. You know, it's like a super yeah, tanker. It takes a long time to turn around a super tanker. If you're talking about the culture uh, between 65 and 66, it's still going to show characteristics of the production code. And also, the production code didn't die definitively until 67. So we're talking about an interim period oh. where the old rules simply just had the inertia that kept them going. Well, this has been this has been a fantastic conversation. I, I, I find a lot of this very enlightening. And, and as well, I urge any parents out there, people who are looking for good content, you know, try to try to find more of those movies zoned into the code era. And and also to anybody who's looking to make new content, make new music, make TV shows or, or, or YouTube content, even, you know, try to see if you can fit yourself into the Hayes School. Challenge yourself, you know, see, see what you can do that would fit into that into that mold, because I think. I think it, what comes out on the other end is always a better product. And, and again, like what's said in the video, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, Howard Hawks, a lot, all of our, they called it the golden age of, of Hollywood for a reason. And the best of it was in that period. So Dr. Jones, I was ecstatic that you agreed to be on my show. I really appreciated you coming on here and uh, I've really enjoyed chatting with you about this. I'd love to have you on maybe in the future if you're available to have another conversation. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on to, uh, onto High Trust Low Context. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. All right. Well, this has been another edition of High Trust, Low Context. Thank you for joining us. I'm El Chaco signing off. Viva Cristo Rey.